step back for a minute and imagine what it would have been like to live in New York City in 1897. It's a sweltering summer day. Like other city dwellers, you get all your news from a single source, daily newspapers. New York has more than a dozen papers all cranking out new editions day and night. The two fastest growing papers are The World and The Journal. That summer in 1897, they're battling for scoops on one of the city's most sensational and lurid crimes ever. And in Gilded Age, New York, that's saying something. The case is known as the Headless Torso Murder. Lower leg found in East River, perfect match to the torso. Get it in the New York world. To promote the latest headlines about this grisly saga, the papers use newsies. These are kids, some as young as six years old, who work each street corner waving fresh hot copies and hawking the headlines. Walking down the street, you can't avoid a throng of them in their knickers and caps. They crisscross in front of you as you make your way to work. Even if you could somehow resist paying two cents for a copy, you get a sense of the news just by listening to their cries. Jailhouse confession from Augusta Knack only in the New York Journal. Murder suspect tells tales of a love triangle gone wrong. Read all about it. The headless torso mystery involves a jilted husband, a German-born midwife, a mysterious muscle man, and a colorful cast of other characters. The city has been mesmerized for months, and too often, like today. Well, you just can't resist pressing your pennies into a newsboy's ink-stained palm to find out the latest. Uh, one copy of the world, please. There, on the front page, is the latest jaw-dropping development in this sordid story. Like the discovery of a pair of dismembered human legs wrapped in stained oilcloth. Folding the paper under your arm, you hustle toward work to talk through the latest gruesome detail with your co-workers. But today, well, today your pace slows. You walk a little further down the street to a different boy and fish two more pennies out of your pocket. The journal had been trouncing the world lately with its scoops. The only way to get the whole story is to buy both. Better give me the journal, too. Best paper in the city. You know better than to argue with a newsie, but he'd be right about one thing. The case would put a bright spotlight on the epic battle between two rival publishers, the two most famous newsmen in American history. Enjoy a powerful business upgrade with Dell Technologies' Black Friday in July event. Get amazing savings with up to 50% off high-performance computers and tech built for business. And be able to take your office with you with Windows 10 Pro. Plus, get great offers on Dell servers, monitors, docks, and more, all with easy financing options through Dell Financial Services. Call 877-ASK-DELL. That's 877-ASK-DELL. And speak with a Dell Technologies advisor today. Louisiana's diverse landscapes include dense timber forests and seafood-rich coastlines. And every step along the way, you'll find a business environment that's strong, diverse, and ripe with opportunity. Need proof? Louisiana is where NASA and higher ed partners build rockets that will soon put the first women on the moon. It's also where the port system delivers the most domestic cargo in the U.S. And Louisiana is home to the best workforce development program in the country. 
See what Louisiana economic development can do for you. Visit OpportunityLouisiana.com today. From Wondery, this is Business Wars. I'm David Brown. On this show, we look at business rivalries. Wondery's podcast, American History Tellers, explores the events, the times, and the people from history that continues to shape our country. This big, bold story of Hearst versus Pulitzer actually arches across both shows. And so, today, we're doing something a little different. For the next two episodes of Business Wars, we're bringing our two podcasts together for a special episode that tells the story of William Randolph Hearst versus Joseph Pulitzer. Joining me today is the host of American History Tellers, Lindsey Graham. Hi there, Lindsey. Hi, David. Um, and in case your audience is wondering, no, I am not that Lindsey Graham. <laughs> yeah, right. Not the South Carolina senator, folks. On Business Wars, we're looking at one of the great business rivalries of American history, and of all time, really, Hearst versus Pulitzer. Now, because Hearst and Pulitzer didn't just fight each other ruthlessly in business on the streets of New York. No, right. They also had an outsized influence on American history. In fact, their rivalry wasn't just a business war. It led to an actual military war between the U.S. and Spain in Cuba. It turns out that the road to that war runs straight through the journal and world newsrooms. And we're going to be looking at that war in a later episode. And we'll also revisit the newsboy strike that changed organized labor and nearly cost Hearst and Pulitzer their empires. But today, we're going to see how their publishing rivalry came to a head over one particularly salacious case, the mystery of the headless torso, and what the business of newspapers was like when that was really the only source of news there was. Uh, only source besides your neighbors, of course. Of course. All right. <laughs> no. William Randolph Hearst, the tall, gregarious Californian from a wealthy family, headed up the journal. The 50-year-old Hungarian immigrant Joseph Pulitzer ran the world. Their duel over the headless torso and other stories like it would shape the world of media, politics, culture, and celebrity. In their mad scramble for readers, they pioneered daring technologies and set new precedents for aggressive investigative coverage. They poured millions of dollars into this fight, even when their advisors warned it could push them over the brink. And in the end, it very nearly did. It's June, 1897. In the journal newsroom, William Randolph Hearst, the paper's flamboyant rich kid boss, paces the floor with a swagger in his step. He's the son of a California senator and mining tycoon, and he dresses the part, too. For a tie pin, he uses a $20 gold piece. Hearst stands more than six foot two, booming out instructions to the city desk, even though they're well within earshot. I want that butcher's diagram on page one. We're going to show readers exactly how Knack and her helpers carved up one William Guldenzupa. <clears throat> but the coroner didn't say how he was cut up. Are we really basing this drawing on what an actual butcher told us? 
He knows beef and poultry, not human anatomy. <laughs> Remember, boys, the public likes entertainment better than it likes information. A few blocks down Park Row from the Journal, on the Manhattan side of the Brooklyn Bridge, is the world's newsroom. Just like his rival down the block, Pulitzer is determined not to get beaten on this story. As the summer has progressed, he's sometimes fled for health reasons to the south of France or to his 300-foot yacht, the Liberty. But even from that cushy distance, his telegrams use precise code and shorthand to make his directions to the editorial staff crystal clear. When he is in the newsroom, he often clutches a hand to his abdomen. Each broadside from Hearst triggers his list of chronic ailments, asthma, neuralgia, insomnia, exhaustion. Through it all, Pulitzer fights back and finds new ways to retaliate. Let the journal concoct whatever half-truths they want. We're going straight to our readers instead. We want to get them personally involved in this case. How are we going to do that? Here's the headline, and I want it to run the width of the page. $500 reward. $500? Hoo-wee. Hope there's enough left for payroll. The world will pay $500 in gold for the correct solution to the mystery of the remnants of a man's body found in the East River and Harlem. Must be exclusively for the world. Uh, boss, what if the journal scoops us? Add to that, appearance of the solution in any other paper will cancel this offer. That's a staggering sum. A year's salary for whoever has a good enough tip. But just when it looks like Pulitzer has the edge, one of Hearst's spies from down the block gets wind of the world's plan. The spy hustles down the block to the journal and tells Hearst. Hearst immediately orders his front page to be ripped up A final evening edition will now hit the streets right after the world's. One last chance for a scoop. In this brand new game of mass media, scoops aren't always bagged by great reporting. The owners of the papers can make their own scoops. The late edition of the journal hits the streets. The lead headline is just two words long, but they're big enough to almost fill the page. The message signals just how badly Hearst wants to win this war. A thousand dollar reward only in the New York Journal. It was the opening volley in a war of words that would rivet the city. Joseph Pulitzer, a self-made Hungarian immigrant, is nearly a generation older than Hearst. Bespectacled, bearded, anxious. And long before their fiercely competitive newspaper battles started... Pulitzer was a sharp contrast from Hearst in age, temperament, experience, and motivation. Pulitzer comes from a family with modern Jewish roots. His father was a grain merchant in Budapest, which is where Joseph grew up. At the age of 19, he emigrated to America, settling in St. Louis after the Civil War. He worked a series of menial jobs and learned English. Eventually, armed with a law degree and a passion for civic life, he went into politics first as a campaign worker, and then as a successful candidate for the Missouri legislature. Politics was satisfying, but its victories were fleeting. The job that resonated most with Pulitzer was working as a reporter for the German-language daily newspaper, which reached a sizable audience of fellow immigrants. 
Imagine you're a county court judge in St. Louis, Missouri. It's 1869, the era of Reconstruction. America's burgeoning cities are nests of corruption. And though many in the country are just staggering back to their feet after the Civil War, being a judge brings a lot of perks. By siding with businessmen, your campaign coffers stay full. With you on the bench, companies grow, and so does the tax base. The city prospers. Except there's this young newspaper reporter by the name of Joseph Pulitzer. He writes for the German-language daily The Weisliche Post, which serves the city's large immigrant population. He's only 22, but already has a keen eye for a good scandal. In just six months on the beat, he has exposed all manner of corruption. Many of his scoops get picked up by the English-language Post-Dispatch. Now, Pulitzer is investigating a decision by the court, one that you, as the judge, barely even remember because it seems so routine. You and three other judges, the other three didn't even show up for work on the day in question, approved a payment for bricks used to build a $700,000 insane asylum. Seems typical. But there was a problem. The bricks were never delivered, but the brick supplier got paid anyway with government money. And Pulitzer somehow managed to sniff it out. You call one of your colleagues into your chambers. Have you seen this article? County court judges were not elected to squander communal money, still damp with the people's sweat. Ugh, jeez. How did this reporter even find out about this? I have no idea. I've got an election coming up. Fix this. I'll take care of it. Two weeks later, you receive word that the money has been returned and the bricks have been loaded into wheelbarrows for delivery to the construction site. Justice has been served thanks to that young journalist, Joseph Pulitzer. Later, he moved to the city's largest English-language daily, the Post-Dispatch. He showed unusual hustle and tenacity in exposing fraud and misdeeds by city officials. In a letter to his parents, Pulitzer once detailed his exploits in America. I'm working from early morning until midnight. I want to immerse myself in every single detail. Newspapers shouldn't just be mouthpieces aimed at the elite. We can champion the cause of average citizens. This is my covenant with my readers. He made good on that promise, delivering exposés of wealthy tax dodgers and perpetrators of government corruption. The stories weren't just earnest do-gooder stuff either. They had plenty of hooks for the reader, too. Before long, he was so committed to the mission that he scraped together $3,000 to buy the paper. In just a couple of years, Pulitzer had turned his investment, worth about $48,000 in today's money, into $80,000 in annual revenue. By the time he made his way to New York, Pulitzer's knack for packaging the news had made him one of the first media moguls. Where's my order? Where's my order? Where's my order? Break free from customer support monotony. Welcome to Intercom for Customer Support the business messenger that uses chatbots, shared inboxes, apps, and more. Intercom's business messenger resolves questions that can be answered automatically, so customer support feels less like Groundhog Day and more like help is on the way. Go to intercom.com support to learn more about Intercom's business messenger for customer support. Birthdays, holidays, promotions, getting that last sprinkle donut. There's a lot in this world worth celebrating, but nothing is worth celebrating more than knowledge, especially knowledge that will pay off, like understanding how compound interest works. 
knowing how to check your investment professional's background, or figuring out your risk tolerance, or finally understanding all those terms your friends keep throwing around like ETF, ESG, and ICO. Go to Investor.gov today to learn about these investment products and more. How much do you already know about investing? Find out by putting your financial knowledge to the test with their new investment quiz. Investor.gov is your unbiased resource for valuable investment information, tools, and tips. Before you invest, Investor.gov. William Randolph Hearst traveled a very different path from Pulitzer. Born into luxury, he had one main challenge in life, escaping his father's long shadow. The elder Hearst had the good fortune to invest $450 in copper and silver mines. That stake turned out to be worth millions, and that wealth propelled him to the U.S. Senate. But the younger Hearst's efforts to make his own name did not make a promising start. At 18, after graduating from St. Paul's, an elite and stuffy prep school in New Hampshire, he landed at Harvard. Newspapers, far more than any other area of academic study, had already begun to exert their pull on young Will Hurst. As business manager of the Harvard Lampoon, Hurst increased circulation by 50% and revenue by 300%, turning a money-losing operation into a profitable one. Outside of the newspaper office, though, Hurst was adrift. He was wary of drinking, the main pastime for many on campus, having seen alcohol ravage his own father and some of his friends. Even so, he gained a reputation for hosting the school's best drinking parties. After beginning in his dorm room, the parties expanded to multiple kegs and bars set up in Harvard Yard. He learned how to stay sober while everyone else drank, an advantage he would use for the rest of his life. But it didn't stop the Harvard dean from putting him on probation for partying. After the rebuke, instead of straightening up and flying right, Hearst decided to drive the final stake through his Harvard career. It's morning in Harvard Yard. You're the president of Harvard College. Like most of the presidents before you, you live in one of the student houses, Massachusetts Hall, right above students. Now, they can be noisy at night sometimes, but this early, most are still asleep. You hear a knock on the door, and still in your nightgown, you head downstairs to see who it could be. When you get there, whoever knocked is gone. But when you look down, you see a gift box on the stoop. You bring it upstairs to your wife. Look what was at the door. Who's it from? You begin to open it. What in the world, Charles? It's a chamber pot, Ellen. No, it's you. Look at the underside. There's a portrait of you. Me? What? What? That's disgraceful. It's a reasonable likeness. It's an insult is what it is, and it won't go unanswered. Sure enough, sending personalized chamber pots to the faculty got Hearst kicked out of Harvard. He returned home to San Francisco. But by the age of 23, he was appointed editor of the San Francisco Examiner, which his father owned. While nepotism landed him the job, genuine talent made him great at it. Upending the paper's tradition of sober, safe reporting, Hearst liked to shape stories as lurid page-turners. He liberally spiked his front page with crime, adultery, and scantily clad women. Despite those prurient instincts, Hearst also craved prestige and devoted the resources to obtain it. He ran a slogan on the paper's front page, anointing it Monarch of the Dailies. He stocked the staff with premier talent, 
hiring some of America's best writers, including Jack London, Ambrose Bierce, and Mark Twain, as Examiner contributors. At the same time, he displayed an uncanny eye for young talent, including a redhead reporter named Winifred Sweet. Using the pseudonym Annie Laurie, Sweet got the city buzzing with her stunts. One time, she pretended to collapse on Market Street to expose San Francisco's lax social safety net. A drunken policeman took 10 minutes to show up, and the emergency room doctor gave her the wrong medication. The examiner scoop got city officials fired. By the time they collided in New York, the Journal and the World had both become known for peddling yellow journalism. The name's origin was straightforward. It came from a cartoon the world published called Hogan's Alley about a barefoot little boy with a wide, toothy grin. He was known as the Yellow Kid. Before long, Hearst poached the Hogan's Alley cartoonist and set him up at the journal. What did Pulitzer do? He hired another artist to create a second Yellow Kid. The dueling cartoons captivated the public. Meanwhile, a third New York publisher had long been looking for a term to describe the brand of sensationalism peddled by his crosstown rivals. He tried new journalism and nude journalism to convey what he saw as the paper's lack of journalistic standards and decency. But the labels failed to catch on with the public. The appearance of the rival comics soon supplied the catchy name he'd been looking for. In 1897, he published an editorial complaining about yellow kid journalism. The editorial caught on. Soon other papers began to take up the expression, and eventually the phrase was shortened to yellow journalism. The name stuck. In turn of the century, New York, both the journal and the world, are cutting a lot of corners and relying on anonymous sources and gimmicks. They generally have little regard for the truth, unless the truth can bring them another scoop. Newspapers used to be aimed at elite readers with money, and they were written in a dry, arcane style. But now, Hearst and Pulitzer are leading the drive to reach a mass audience. They want to engage people emotionally. Spare, fussy items about dry civic matters will not cut it for the journal or the world. Crime and the human condition are what most fascinate the masses. In a city like New York, there's a never-ending supply of both. House fires tear families apart. Factory accidents kill immigrants fresh off steamships from Europe. Brazen robberies leave merchants penniless as the perpetrators remain at large. Both the world and the journal learn that the fastest way to grab readers is to publish lurid stories about sex crimes. With the headless torso case, they've hit a gold mine. The case is a genuine whodunit. It begins with the discovery of the eponymous torso floating in the East River. Then, a midsection with upper legs attached, cropped up in a field in Harlem. After police literally pieced together the evidence, they discovered the vicious murder had all the trappings of a classic love triangle gone wrong. Augusta Knack a German midwife with a penchant for dressing all in black, was in a relationship with William Guldenzupa, a tall, muscular man with a kind of well-groomed mustache that has come back into fashion. He made his living pounding knots out of customers' backs in the bathhouses of New York City. A couple of years earlier, Guldenzupa had broken up Nack's marriage to her husband. 
Knack eventually tired of her lover. She took up with a new man, a caddish barber named Martin Thorne. And before long, Gulenzupa learned about their tryst. He beat the barber and threatened to strangle him. So Knack and Thorne plotted to kill Guldenzupa. Love might not have been their only motivation. Rumor had it that alongside her midwife practice, Knack was performing illegal abortions. When Guldenzupa discovered her with Thorne, the theory went, he threatened to turn her in to the authorities. Knack lured her former lover to a shack in a rural section of Queens. Thorne was lying in wait. He shot Gulenzupa in the face and then slit his rival's throat, nearly taking his head off in the process. Thankfully, the small clapboard house had a bathtub, perfect for collecting spillover blood from the messy operation. But Knack and Thorne proved to be incompetent criminal masterminds. Knack and Thorne decided to cut up the body. They bundled the parts with rope and cheesecloth and deposited them all over the city. They also unwittingly left clues all over town from where they purchased the cheesecloth to loose-lipped chats and saloons. It would only be a matter of time before the authorities caught on to them, but not before a greedy public had poured over every last detail. Their appetite for the headless torso case was insatiable, and Hearst and Pulitzer were determined to meet it. But to do so, they realized they would need to step up their operations. In the next episode, as the headless torso case reaches a verdict, Hearst and Pulitzer craft ingenious techniques to outscoop each other and tantalize the public. And it nearly comes to blows. I hope you enjoyed this special crossover episode of Business Wars. And we invite you to subscribe to both Business Wars and American History Tellers on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, NPR, iHeartRadio, or wherever you're listening right now. You'll find a link on the episode notes. Just tap or swipe over the cover art. You'll also see some offers from our sponsors, and we hope you'll support our show by supporting them. If you like what you're hearing, we'd love for you to give us a five-star rating and review us, and make sure to tell your friends and show them how to subscribe while you're at it. Another way you can support the show is by filling out a small survey at wondery.com survey. I'm your host, David Brown, along with Lindsey Graham. Dade Hayes wrote this story. Senior producer is Karen Lowe. Edited and produced by Jenny Lauer. Sound designed by Bay Area Sound. Our executive producers are Marshall Louie and Hernan Lopez for Wondery. Looking for the hottest takes and the spiciest celebrity gossip? Look no further. Welcome to Rich and Daily, the all-new podcast from Wondery that's going to bring you up to speed on all of Hollywood's most current secrets and scandals. Need to know what Harry and Meghan are up to? What's the latest in Britney's conservatorship hearing? We've got you covered. I'm Arisha Skidmore-Williams, and along with my bestie and fellow celeb news fanatic, Brooke Sifrin, we're bringing you the latest entertainment gossip every Monday through Friday. Is that rumor you heard about Rihanna true? If it is, you better believe we'll have something to say about it. So if you want to be in the know about who's been seen with whom and who's in and who's out— 
join us on Rich and Daily, because we don't just listen to the rumor mill. We give you the celebrity facts as they happen. Listen to Rich and Daily on Amazon Music, or you can listen to episodes ad-free by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app. With Rich and Daily, feel the gossip. Wondery, feel the story.